If you can stand with me in the reading of God's Word, please. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Last week, we were looking at the first of the three temptations mentioned in this text. We're looking at the second temptation now. A word of the Lord says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you, Lord, for your word. But I also thank you mostly, Father, for showing us in Matthew's gospel that your Son, Jesus Christ, endured the same temptations that we endure. And I pray, dear God, this morning, as you speak to us in your word, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and encourage us and remind us that it is your word that we crave It is your word that is true and stable, and that you, dear God, are faithful and do not need to be tempted or tested. Our trust and our faith in your grace is enough, because the blood of your Son was more than enough. And I pray, God, this morning, as you speak to us in your word, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, that you would speak directly into our souls. Help us, dear Father, this morning. We need you desperately. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. The temptations of Jesus Christ are studied often, and sometimes we may glance over these passages of the Gospels with, well, that was good for Jesus. We would never be tempted by Satan directly the way Jesus was. Jesus endured temptations long, much higher and greater than we could ever imagine for ourselves. And if we have that attitude about these passages, I think that we are missing the importance of what Jesus went through. Last week we saw in the first part of chapter 4 that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for this season of fasting and temptation by the devil. This was something that the Holy Spirit mandated and caused to happen in the life of the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but again, like we mentioned last week, I don't know that I could go 40 days without eating. I don't know if many of us can go 40 minutes without eating. We're good Baptists. We've got to eat. But there is something about what we looked at last week, this temptation of Satan to Jesus Christ. This temptation was a temptation that, that hit at the very core of our hunger and our desires, our passions for things and for the world. We have these desires and passions and hungers that we want to satisfy ourselves and through the temptation of from the Satan to Jesus, Jesus stood up very clearly. What he really hungered for was God's word. Now, it's interesting here that as, G- that as Satan here is rebuffed by Jesus, by God's word, now we come into this second of the temptations that are referred to here. And the devil is saying, okay, Jesus, if you're going to respond to me with God's word, 
let's see how much you really trust God's word. And you notice here that in these, in these verses, verses 5 and 6, the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and then spoke to him directly from God's word. What we need to be reminded of here is that Jesus is going through temptations that you and I face every single day. Now, Jesus did not go just through three temptations. That would be the wrong takeaway from this passage. Jesus was, was not only tempted three times in 40 days. I'd say he was tempted hundreds of times a day or more for 40 days. What we see here in these passages is really just a summary of the highlights, kind of like an outline perhaps, of the different types of temptations that Satan took Jesus through. The first one, again, was that of hunger and desire. Will you fulfill your own hunger and your own desire, or will you allow God's Word to be what you desire? Now we look at this passage of being tempted, really, to test God's Word. How many of us go through that temptation? Have you gone through something perhaps this week where you said, Dear God, I don't know if what you say to me is true. How many of us have gone through that? I'll admit, as a Christian, we all I do. We all have seasons of doubting whether or not what God has promised in His Word really is what He says. The question is, how do we respond to it? Because Jesus here, he is tempted, even in this, Jesus is tempted to doubt God's word. And we know that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and he was tempted, yet he did not sin. So we have to be reminded that temptation itself is not sinful. Satan tempts. God tests. It's a big difference there. Satan will tempt with the purpose of distorting the truth to the fact that Satan wants to tempt us to doubt God. Whereas God will allow the temptations as a test for our faith. The more Christ-like we become, the more diabolical the temptations the more Christ-like that we are, the closer we are to the Holy Spirit, the closer we are to God's presence in our lives, the closer we are to to being more like Christ than before, the harder Satan is going to bring temptations into our lives, or perhaps the more tempting we will face hardships in our lives. Jesus was tempted without sin. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, and Hebrews chapter 4, 15. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. So temptation in itself is not sin. Let's just be reminded of that. Now, if we place ourselves purposefully into a temptation to test God... That's where I think that we would fall into sin. And this is what Satan, I think, was trying to do to Jesus here as he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he he just taunts him. I double dare you, Jesus. Jump off of this roof and show everybody that angels will protect you. 
What Satan was doing was he was taking Jesus to a place and actually prompting Jesus to test God's word. Jump from the tower, jump from the pinnacle of in Jerusalem and just see what happens, Jesus. When the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, we know that is Jerusalem, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, or in some translations this may say that he took him to the tower of the temple. Now, where was this? And in, in the this would have been Herod's temple in Jerusalem, and this would have been the roof that extended over Herod's portico, a very prominent section of the temple where a lot of major events happened in Scripture. This roof that extended over Herod's portico perhaps had a tower or a platform that was much higher so that it was the highest point of the temple itself. If you were to jump off of this point of the temple, you would have actually jumped into a valley because the temple is seated right on the edge of a valley. So you're at the height of the valleys where the temple is at, and then if you climb to the top of that tower, you would jump from there, and it would be 450 feet to the valley floor. You would not only just fall to the floor of the temple, you would actually fall off of a cliff down a valley, and it would be a 450-foot drop into the valley. Now, some people are saying, boy, that'd be a great, uh, great jump, wouldn't it? Like the bungee cord stuff. Y'all ever done that foolish thing? Tie a bungee cord to your feet and intentionally jump off of a perfectly solid platform for fun? We do that now, don't we? But Satan is taking Jesus to this point and testing him with Scripture. He's testing God's Word here. Now, the tower here, or the pinnacle of the temple, was more than just a tower. It was actually, it had an, intent, a, an architectural purpose. The tower was a visible demonstration of God's presence and protection. That's why it was designed the way it was. It was an architectural statement pointing to the heights of heights of God's presence. We are pointing up, and there's a visible presence of God's protection and His resting in the temple with His people. So the symbolism of this place, the symbolism of this pinnacle, was more than just a high point. It was intended by the people of God to show that God demonstrates His presence and His protection for us. Satan just didn't pick a random place to take Jesus to. It was a very significant point. What does Satan do here? In verse 6, Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, there's those words of doubt, if, then throw yourself down. It's an if-then statement. It is a statement of cause and effect. If you are the Son of God, then you can throw yourself down. You can jump off of this tower. You can jump off of this point of the roof. There's no reason why you should fear that, Jesus. The reason that you can do this, Jesus, is because it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. What is He quoting here? Flip over to Psalm 91. Let's take a look at what Satan is twisting 
for a minute. Psalm 91. This is a passage in the Psalms proclaiming God's protection, that God is faithful to provide for His people and to protect His people. Isn't that worthy of singing? Here we are in Psalm 91. I want to begin in verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is refuge. My evil shall be allowed to befall, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Those are the words of David in the Psalms. Singing praises to the Lord, singing praises to the idea that God is faithful to protect His children. It's a song of promise. Dear God, You are going to protect me. You have made Your guarantee that if I call upon Your name, You will respond. And so Satan is using this text to tempt Jesus. Jesus, just jump off of this tower, jump off of this roof here. No worries, no fear, because if you're the Son of God and God's Word is faithful, then God must, He is obligated to protect you from His Word. That's the temptation. Now, what's going on here? Satan continues here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. We see both of these here in Psalm 91, but the second section here, he's really referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because this is actually important too. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10, and we want to read through verse 18 and 19. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all goods that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. Verse 16. 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord God or the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. What is happening here? What Satan is doing here is he's taking Scripture, these passages of God's protection, and he is twisting these as a temptation to Jesus. You can do this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying to Jesus, you claim to be God's son, and you claim to trust his word. If so, why don't you just demonstrate your power? Why don't you just demonstrate your sonship and prove to everybody that God's word is trustworthy? Put God's divine power to the test. And we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 a warning that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. That is a test where the people of Israel, God's people, were testing God's faithfulness, where God said, I will provide for you water, and they doubted God, and they wanted to test God's word, and God punished them as a result. But what's happening here? How many times have we seen the same thing happen, even in our churches and in our modern-day Christianity, where Christian leaders and churches will actually teach that we should test God's Word? How many of us have seen that or heard that? Think about this. Think about what what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here. Why don't you just test God's Word and prove Him faithful? I would ask this question, does God need us to prove his faithfulness? Absolutely not. Because God, if he is faithful, he will prove himself to us without our needing to tempt him. It's one thing for God to test his people. It's another thing for God's people to test him. Big difference. Now notice here what Satan is actually trying to get Jesus to do. What he's really, this is really nothing original with Satan. That's the thing about Satan, the tempter. When he brings accusations and temptations, he, he, he's so boring, he cannot create anything new. He's just going to borrow something that's already happening and try to twist it and make it look so glamorous for you. Why is I'm saying this? Because when, Jesus, when Satan takes Jesus to this pinnacle of the temple... Other false messiahs had already tried to do the very same thing. We know this from church tradition. We know this from history. Many false messiahs, first of all, realize that at the time of Jesus, he was not the only one claiming to be the Son of God. There were numerous false messiahs that had come on the scene long before Jesus was born. Even while he was ministering, there were many charlatans out there proclaiming to be the promised Messiah. And they had little groups that, surround, that, that followed them. Right? They had great followings. They were very charismatic men. They were ones who could stir up a crowd. They promised wonderful miracles and signs. Why don't you come with me and I will show you great things. There were messiahs everywhere. The Roman government and the uh, religious leaders of the temple were fed up with them. They were bored with them. They were worn out from all of these false messiahs. 
There were messiahs who had led, who would lead people to crazy ends. One man called Theodos, he led a group of people from the temple, so they would gather at the temple, and he would lead them down to the Jordan River, and he promised that I'm going to go to the Jordan River, and I'm going to split the water the way Moses did. He wasn't very successful. And he was proved to be a false prophet, a false messiah, and he lost all of his following. Another man, uh, another Egyptian cult messiah, this guy comes out of Egypt. Remember the prophecies at Christmas time where the messiah will come from Egypt? This man comes from Egypt and he, he formed this cult. He claimed to be the messiah that God promised to come out of Egypt. And he claimed that he would lay flat the walls of Jerusalem. Of course, he stands up there and makes big claims and praise and stuff, and of course, he fails at that. And what happens to his following? They disappear. Of course, there probably were some remnants of people who were, well, it just wasn't God's time. We'll just stay faithful. You know, we know all these kind of things. We see these kind of charlatans all the time. Sensationalism always appeals to the flesh, doesn't it? The, the more grandiose and exciting the show, the more attracted we are to it. And false leaders, false messiahs will play on that sinful aspect of our being that we are drawn to sensationalism. Can we say Jimmy Baker? Do you realize Jimmy Baker is still out there doing the same things he always was? Except he's now on YouTube. He's got his own YouTube channel. I think he's... He's selling uh, survival food or something. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he's still got his same show format, and he has a new family and a new wife and new children, and he's out in Branson, Missouri. I think that's where he's at now. And, of course, he comes on his TV show, YouTube channel, and he claims miraculous, sensational things that the Lord is doing, and he's declaring and... God's Word. and Oh, by the way, we have this bucket of survival food that will keep you surviving at the time of the apocalypse and you can eat it and it will stay fresh for 50 years. Buy it now for $500, whatever. It's crazy. Jimmy Baker. Can we say Benny Hinn? He's not as popular as he used to be. We all know who Benny Hinn was. Uh, I, I love it uh, around the time of, in the fall when... The time changes in the fall, you know, fall back. There's this meme that always circulates around the Internet around that time. Now, Benny Hinn, he's swinging his jacket and somebody's falling back. Sensationalism. It's nothing new. I mean, we, we have a tradition in the United States of America. American churches in the 19th century were stirred up by sensationalist tent preachers tent revival preachers, and they would sensationalize the meetings with the designed purpose to cause people to come to the altar. Why do we have this as a problem? Matthew 24. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Beginning in verse 22. These are the words of Jesus himself. 
Matthew 24, beginning in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human, would be, no, no human being would be alive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See? I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where the corpse is, There, the vultures will gather. Whenever the body that gathers in the name of Christ is a corpse, I think what Jesus is pointing out is false prophets will flourish. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. These are the words of Christ himself. Warning the church against sensationalism, as Satan is testing Jesus to do in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus' response to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, after he tries to cause Jesus to jump off of the temple. Now imagine if, again, there is speculation here about whether Satan physically takes Jesus there or this was some kind of a spiritual Vision. We, I think it's irrelevant whether it was physically there or a vision. Regardless, it was temptations. Jesus would be standing on top of the temple, and you can imagine all the crowds below in the temple courtyard and in and around the city would have been able to see him from where he was at. And Jesus would have been tempted. All of these people can see me, and I can make a major impact by doing this, this miraculous thing of jumping off of this temple, and the angels will... Save me. That was what Satan was trying to get Jesus to think. And Jesus here in verse 7 says, To Satan, again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He replies to Satan from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that trusting the Lord's provision is enough. Trusting that God is faithful is enough. You do not need to test God because God warns us, don't do this. God is the one who loves us. God is the one who takes care of us. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is faithful. It doesn't need to be tested. And anyone who teaches from a pulpit in the name of Jesus Christ who claims that we must test God's word, I want you to remind yourself of exactly what Jesus says to Satan here as Jesus tries to tempt him with God's word. By testing God's word, we're doubting God. By testing God's word, our faith is not strong. Now here is something to be reminded of here. That Jesus, who has been taken to this very prominent place, 
to be tempted to make a show, to be sensational so that everyone will believe that God is who he is and that you are the Son of God and you are who you claim to be. Jesus is rejecting all sensationalism for the truth of God's Word and for the truth of who Jesus is. The temptations that we might have could be the same. At Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we could easily be tempted to develop sensational worship with the smoke machines and the fog lights and the... Nothing wrong with that in a concert. If you're there to be entertained, that's the purpose of all that stuff, then that's what it's for. But if we are here to worship as God's people, if we are His elect, as the Word calls us, the words of Jesus Himself warn us that sensational false preachers, sensational false messiahs will try to dissuade us, even the elect. Now, again, I'm not saying that good music and great, great professionalism is not valuable. It is. But at the heart of worship is God's presence as we are faithfully worshiping Him. We could be tempted as a church to go out into the community and have sensational events for the purpose of stirring up the people. Nothing wrong with good, honest service to the community. Nothing wrong with serving the poor. Nothing wrong with loving on single mothers and widows. Nothing wrong with taking care of those who need care. We are mandated by Scripture to do so. But is sensationalism necessary to make that happen? We could be tempted in the location that we're in, right here on Highway 111. High visibility. To have great events right here for everybody to see. We could do that. But why would we do it? Are we doing it to bring attention to us? Look at us. We are the church. Look at all the fun that you can have at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. I hope people come here and have fun. I don't want Sovereign Grace to be a boring place. I want us to have fun. I want us to be a family. I want us to love each other. Do y'all love each other? Y'all have fun when you come to church? How about, hey, kids, are y'all having... Yeah, Timmy's back there. Yeah, I'm having fun when I come to church. We can have fun in God's Word. We can love each other and laugh and joy. We can cry with each other in sorrow and pain. We don't need the sensationalism. doesn't mean we have to be boring. Because God's Word is enough. If we are centering our church and are gathering as God's people around God's Word, then everything else takes care of itself. Then the worship will be pure then the teaching in Sunday school will be right on target. And God will be stirring us as His people to love one another if God's Word is the center of what we do here. Correct? And as our lives as Christians, we don't need this sensationalism because there is... Now, we have to be cautious here that Jesus is really responding to Satan in the correct way. He's responding to the temptation to elevate himself over God's faithfulness. That's really what's happening. Jesus is being tempted to protect himself in a sensational stunt. He's actually being 
tempted to not allow God to protect him, not to allow God to provide for him. I'm just going to throw myself out there and see what if God will be faithful to his word to protect me and not let my feet hit a rock. Satan twists God's word. Now here's the, here's the irony of this location at the temple and we'll close with this. Tradition claims also that Simon the Magician, do you remember Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8? Tradition claims that Simon the Magician actually went to the temple at the pinnacle exactly right here because he knew the stories of Jesus. Church tradition says that Simon the Magician himself went to the very top of this temple where Jesus stood and he physically threw himself off of that to show his followers that he was the Messiah. Do you know what church tradition says? He landed at the bottom of the valley and all of his followers dissipated. The other thing is that James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, church tradition also says he did not purposefully throw himself off of this place, but he was martyred by being taken to Solomon's portico and being thrown off of that porch into the valley as a witness to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see the difference here between the sensationalism of someone like Simon the magician who wanted to prove how wonderful he was and the truth revealed how much of a false prophet he truly was. Compared to James the leader of the Jerusalem church, who was arrested, tried, convicted, martyred for the name of the gospel. It wasn't sensational. It was faithful. To the very end, he died being thrown off of this same location into the valley. The enemies of God said, we're going to throw you off of here and let's see if the angels protect you, uh, James. Let's see what happens. He died for his Savior. So I don't know about you, but if you go through a, a season of doubting God's faithfulness, and we do that. That's part of the Christian journey, isn't it? We're going to have seasons where God is silent. We're going to have seasons where we may not know exactly what's coming next. And we could be very tempted, just like Abraham and Sarai did, when they were promised a son, it wasn't happening at the time that they wanted it to. And so they took matters into their own hands and they said, okay, God, we're going to see if you're really meaning what you say. Same thing. We're going to be tempted to test God's faithfulness. We're going to be tempted to, taste, or to test God's word. I think instead of testing him, Let's ask Him to show us personally how faithful He is. Dear God, I don't hear You right now. I'm, I'm doubtful. I'm worrisome. I'm not going to make anything sensational. But and this can be a, a sincere prayer. Dear God, please, will You speak to me again? And he, I don't know if He will or He will not. I don't know. But we can have faith that God's Word is what it is.
even in those times of doubt. Amen? Let's not fall into the trap of sensationalism. Let's not fall into the trap of this is not working the way I think God wants it to work, so I'm going to make it work for Him. That's kind of at the root of this temptation as well. If God says that He will protect His people, then He's going to protect His people. He's even going to protect His people just like James in the moment of martyrdom. Martyrdom for the name of Christ is not something we intentionally look for. But if that's what God is asking us to do, are we willing to even do that? I want us to close this time in prayer, but also singing praises to the Lord.